Hello and welcome to the CRE with CBC Worldwide podcast. This is Tom Hershey from Cobalt Banker Commercial. Joining me today for the first of a two-part series are John Marshalla and Andrew Freeman of KO Storage. John and Andrew are here to discuss the self-storage market, looking at both investment strategies and market fundamentals. As managing partners, John and Andrew currently oversee the day-to-day functions of KO Storage with Charles Chip Gardner running operations. Incidentally, Chip came from one of the largest self-storage operators in the country, public storage. KO has 116 locations in 17 states, comprising 24,000 units. Today, they're going to speak with us about not only how they got into self-storage real estate, but the overall investment appeal as well. Gents, thank you for joining us today. This is a great and very current topic in the CRE world and one about which I'm ready to learn more. I recently read that storage units recorded an unprecedented uptick in business due to the pandemic and that occupancies have soared to over 95%. But there has to be more to its investment allure than just that. Namely, there are more than 30,000 operators um, with almost 55,000 square feet of facilities nationwide. What's pulling them in? So let's get started. Will you kick off by telling us a little more about what you do and what lured you into the world of self-storage? Yeah, hey Tom, thanks uh, Thanks for having us. Uh, happy to be here, excited to be here. Um, we're honored to talk with you and you know, hopefully your listeners can glean some good information here on the self-storage industry, but um, you got Andrew Freeman, myself speaking, uh, John Marshalla, college buddy. Um, you know, we started an e-commerce business out uh, side of college about five years ago, and it just had exponential growth. And as that business uh, had that growth, we were looking for something to do to parlay some of our surplus capital on uh, John and I both had a prior experience, albeit limited, with different asset classes within real estate. So we knew that it was a great way to build generational wealth. We knew we didn't want to go into residential and multifamily or commercial, mixed use, et cetera, for various different reasons. But we didn't know where we wanted to go until one day in 2016, being the deal junkie I am, I found an off-market opportunity in Black River Falls, Wisconsin, to assume a self-storage facility that had been completely mismanaged, run into the ground. By no means was it dilapidated or in bad condition. The gentleman just had no idea what it was he was doing, and he was trying to sell it. Uh, as we got into the, the weeds and dug a little deeper, we realized the bank was about to foreclose on it. So we were actually able to assume the loan with no money out of pocket except for paying the back taxes and took over this you know, 82, 85 unit property. And we had no idea what we were doing. We had no idea what we were getting ourselves into, but we just jumped in headfirst. Um, I did the bookkeeping for two years. I answered every single phone call. John helped with all of the technology. John has a great tech background from Deloitte. 
And as soon as we saw an inefficiency with this business, we were sitting at our desk, okay, how do we reduce this moving part? How do we remove these inefficiencies? How do we streamline operations while using, you know, best in class technology? We very quickly realized that this is an outdated, antiquated, archaic mom and pop operated business. It's the inverse of every other asset class. When we started, you had the big six and the top 100 operators that equated to about 25% of the entire market. 75% was fragmented mom and pop operators in a lot of B and tertiary markets, which is the inverse of other asset classes. So as we were learning the industry, we saw this ripe for consolidation, outdated industry that was ripe for technology implementation and for someone going into these B and tertiary markets. And if you think back to 2016, CAT was not out of the bag on self-storage. It was still considered a flyover you know, asset. It wasn't a sexy asset class like it is today since after COVID, you know, proved again for it to be recession resilient. So we just jumped into that asset headfirst, touched every single moving piece of the business for two years. And as that one got optimized and fully leased up, and we went into 2017 having some more wins at our um, e-commerce business, we decided, all right, let's buy another one. Let's buy another one. Let's buy another one. Next thing you know, guy down the street's calling us, hey, what you just bought, you know, down the road from my property, I seen what you did in a few months, I haven't been able to do in a few years, why don't you just buy my property? And that was the nature of the business at the time. People were selling, people were open to selling at high cap rates, there wasn't this competition that you have today. And we continued to refine our operations, we continued to get better with our technology, we continued to get more educated and smarter until about 2018, when we kind of looked at each other and said, all right, this is no longer a side hustle for us. Our e-commerce business is going great, but we're, you know, we're splitting time and, you know, we have a running joke of passing off this torch. You know, John's staying up till three, four in the morning. I'm waking up at four or five and we're just handing off this torch. So we have coverage 24 hours a day. You know, we had a bat phone that seven days a week just traveled with me. It didn't matter if I was on a boat or if I was in a meeting, this phone was there. And if a storage customer called, we were there ready, available to, to lease a unit with no employees. Up until about that point, we did it completely on our backs, uh, you know, maybe 30, 35 facilities. And we decided, hey, let's hire an employee. So we hired an employee and we decided that we were no longer going to, you know, split our focus and solely focus on the self-storage sector or the self-storage business as we saw the writing on the wall. And we hired some industry vets from large organizations. We bought an office building and we continued to do it like that until 2019, early 20, when our pipeline was so robust, our friends and family had sat idly by watching continuously talking to us. If you ever took um, outside money, friends and family investments, we'd love insulation diversification from traditional investment vehicles. We opened that up. We continued to hire more employees. 
Fast forward to 2021, we're in the midst of a global pandemic um, when a lot of other large outfits were playing defense and trying to scramble to put in automation, remote list, contact lists, you know, run facilities or more automation. We had had that in place since day one. So we were able to be an offensive. We were able to heavily acquire, heavily hire. And uh, as you mentioned, Chip, uh, Charles Gardner came to us from public storage as our president of operations. He's been amazing. Um, we would not be the organization we are today. We would not be where we are today without him. He has been instrumental to our growth. He has experience overseeing a half a billion dollar portfolio, 40,000 units. And we just continued to grow in 2021. Uh, you know, to end 2021 and where we are today, you you did your homework, you got pretty close, but we're at 124 stores today in 18 states with no site, uh, no, no end in sight. Uh, we've got a really robust pipeline for 2022. The space is as hot and competitive as I've ever seen it. And we're just excited for the continued growth and to see what comes. So hope that, uh, Hope that gave you some answers and kind of how we got started. But, you know, just I guess one other thing to reiterate is you know, John and I are very proud that we've touched every part of this business. You've got a lot of people jumping into this business today who aren't storage operators. They might be private equity or REITs or just deep pockets because there's so much equity sitting on the sidelines. So it's become more competitive, but we know this business inside now. We're obviously you know, still young and still getting going, but we're getting smarter every day. Wow, that's uh, that's a cool foray into the business, kind of uh, the accidental business venture, if you will. So um, let's dive a little deeper. I, I know you knew this question was coming, um, but, it, you know, many of the assumptions of risk are based on reality television shows. Um, you know, abandoned stuff. While there's inherent risk in all investments, I, I mean, it's the way the world works. Do you think that those shows unfairly portray the self-storage business? I, I don't know if unfair is the word. I would say they um, glamorize it a little bit and make it, you know, a little bit more Hollywood uh, driven. Um, you know, there's there's not much reality rooted in those shows. You know, you're not finding hidden treasures in storage units. You're not bidding 20 bucks and coming home with two grand. You're coming home with a headache. But, you know, there's people out there like those jobbers that, that you know, go to auctions. They buy a bunch of stuff. But from, like, a risk perspective, it's just one cog in the operational wheel. I mean, every state has different lien law auction processes. Self-storage is a month-to-month -month lease, and it's considered a luxury class asset. So you're not dealing with the same onerous eviction, you know, type restrictions you deal with in, in like a residential, you know, unit, for example, or, you know, the, the legal, um, you know, potentially messy legal aspects. If a commercial tenant, you know, large commercial tenant breaks their lease and net, 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 I mean, I'd say our average unit rents, you know, call it 80 to a hundred dollars a month. So for the most part, you know, getting someone just to leave with their goods and not leave anything behind, 
is really the desired outcome uh, so that you can open up the space to lease it again. You're not, you're not, you know, losing that much if you've got a couple months of past due rent or anything like that of, on one of 500 units. So storage wars is, is um, if anything, I, I like it because it, it brought storage to the forefront of people's minds as, as a potential um, service and, and asset to use as, as a service. And it's, I think it's helped drive some of the, growth in that industry but but i would not base much of, of any operations on what you see in the tv show so 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 let me dive a little deeper you mentioned you know leases and luxury class asset and how you know the leases differ let's talk a little more about how the leases differ you know if i am renting an apartment and i default and you know then there's all this you know, work that has to be done legally as far as the owner being able to enter the apartment and to evict me. So how from the self storage angle do those leases differ from, let's say, an apartment? Are there entry requirements like can you just go inspect a unit uh, at any time or is there still, you know, some sort of regulations regarding that? So every state has slightly unique regulations. Um, you know, we work with an attorney that specializes in the space. And so he's very familiar with our lease and how to adapt it. You know, when we first started first couple of years, we only did Minnesota, Wisconsin. That was pretty easy. You know, we read the regulations and knew exactly what to do. But now that we're in 18 states and you start incorporating things like military tenants, which have their own set of, of laws, it gets a little bit more complex. But, you know, strictly speaking, I'm going to speak in generalizations because this is more of an average of the whole. But typically by day seven, you can charge a late fee. By day 15, you can overlock their unit, meaning you're double locking it and denying them access. Uh, by day 30, you have a, a lien on their property and, and it technically belongs you know to the to you to to either dispose of or auction based on the value and then typically you know you have to advertise for 14 days that you're going to be auctioning the goods and by day 45 or sometimes day 60 um some states go out to like day 75 um again there, there's there's various you know aspects to each one but typically by day 45 to day 60 for the most part uh you can conduct said auction and uh you know be rid of the goods and then be ready to to release the unit now with our technology first approach you know the software we use we're sending out texts emails and snail mail automatically on the 7th 15th 30th 45th and 60th day encouraging the tenant to pay to call us to communicate with us um, to avoid that auction process so we're you know meeting our requirements by the law but also doing everything we can to encourage them to pay it and we'll typically waive late fees if someone is willing to go on auto pay uh, just because the goal is really to push everyone to automatic credit card payments um, and we'll also, you know, if someone's in a tough spot or, you know, they're, they're going through a tough time in life, you know, we'll give them an opportunity to potentially pay to vacate where they pay a nominal sum or give us a deposit and they clear out all their goods and we release them. Again, our goal is really just to, to clear out that unit in the cheapest possible fashion. The, the worst case scenario for us is if it's just full of junk, you can't auction it because nobody wants to buy it. And then you got to pay, you know, a large sum of money to actually dispose of the goods. That's where it gets a little bit more costly. But we can usually mitigate that for the most part. Um, but, you know, again, it's it, when we first started and, and I think for outsiders looking in, it's a daunting process. But once you understand the state laws and you have, you know, the technology supporting you to do it and you actually put everything in place, 
all the way down to, you know, now being able to advertise in online publications or, you know, via Craigslist or newsletters and, and also being able to use a website. We use storagetreasures.com uh, to actually hold our auctions. We don't have to have the physical in-person stuff and it opens up to a broader market. So it's a buttoned up deal for us now, but it was definitely a, a challenging operational task out of the gate. Um, you know, one of the, the other things we did, we used to take security deposits, um, which seemed like a good idea because you could, you know, hold the money and if they didn't pay their rent, you could apply it towards past due rent or you could use it towards disposal costs if they don't clean it out. But what ended up happening is it became the biggest you know, pain in the ass as far as administration goes, because when do people need storage? Oftentimes when they're moving. So when they move out and they say, I need my security deposit back, well, now our accounting department has to cut a check, mail it to the last address we have on file, which may or not be their current address. <laughs> maybe it gets forwarded, maybe it gets returned. They call our call center wondering where their money is. As you can imagine, all those moving parts cost us a lot more than the the couple, you know, security deposits we might keep. So we actually don't even take a security deposit any longer just because gotcha. it became more of a pain than a than an asset. So um I'm gonna circle back to something Andrew said uh when uh providing us with how you guys got into the business and that was you knew you didn't want to do multifamily. And listening to you talking about some of the regulations and restrictions, I was just curious. I I mean Basically, you're dealing multifamily is boxes with people in them and self-storage is boxes with stuff in it. So based on everything you just said, is boxes of stuff less risky? Is there less management intensity than multifamily? Why, I guess, why did you say no multifamily and, well, self-storage is cool? So you got... Yeah, John and I both kind of chuckling over here laughing because I think as you were speaking, it's like, yeah, as you're saying, like, think about how complex some of those other things are. And at, at the end of the day with self-storage, we've got a slab of concrete with a roll-up door. People don't live in the units, at least they're not supposed to. And you don't, <laughs> you don't have plumbing, you don't have electricity. So, you know, one of the things we saw with the residential is until you get this critical scale, it's just kind of like death by a thousand cuts with you know management companies and there's no real economical way to to oversee a few units unless you're very handy yourself at least what we had seen or what our experience was is you're paying these big management companies large fees and it really cuts into the bottom line so you know when we first started off i mean we could run these things lean 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 as we grew more and more we had to start hiring ahead you know, we built out a management company. We've got 115 employees now between, you know, this and our construction arm. So, you know, obviously with that more um, overhead, you know, reduces the expense, but we're still operating as one of the best asset classes with one of the lowest expense profiles in the industry, lower than the large players because of our tech first approach. But, you know, high level, <clears throat> what attracted us to something else was you didn't have those constraints of the regulation. You didn't have the need to deal with, you know, people living in the units and there's nothing wrong with it. It's a great model. It just wasn't for us. And I'd be lying to you if I told you we knew before we went into it, the inverse nature of the asset class or the consolidation play. We found that out once we were already in and that just kept us coming back for more and more and more and more. Yeah, I mean, I had built up a, a, 
a portfolio of about 175 residential units across Minnesota and Wisconsin. And I owned a couple duplex and a triplex I'd bought when I was in college. And I was self-managing those because they weren't big enough to really justify giving up, you know, eight to 10% of the rent for something. So I had, you know, duplex, triplex and college kids, 21 college kids have my, my phone number on speed dial. Every time a light bulb goes out and I get a text, uh, you know, about, about what needs to happen. And then with the, with the portfolio of 175 units in Wisconsin, we had, uh, you know, a management company in place that was just completely bending us over. You know, they they said, yeah, we'll do it for 7%. But little did I know their handyman that could barely screw in a, a, a screw was, you know, billing out at 75 an hour and they would half-ass their repairs so that they just have to keep coming back. And so while our, you know, management fee wasn't crazy, all the, you know, outside services were self-dealing almost. And, and we've seen that pretty rampantly in in, in residential. Um, again, as Andrew mentioned, there, there's nothing wrong with the asset class. A lot of people have a lot of success there. It's the traditional way to, you know, house hack and build wealth. But, it, you know, for us, when we got into storage, it was all about eliminating moving parts. We don't sell boxes. We don't sell locks. We don't have someone sitting in an office playing on Facebook all day, making 50 grand a year to, to, you know, help two customers move in. We have a centralized call center and because storage is, is a, quite a bit more of a commodity, I would say than a, than a residential, you know, housing complex or multifamily units where people are living there and there's a lot more preference, you know, net, 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 as long as your facility is clean, well-lit, secure and dry, you're offering the same product as the guy at the street. So it's really more about the customer service you can provide and how you can automate that process instead of having to worry about all the, you know, CapEx allowances and deferred maintenance that takes place in residential. So I guess what I'm getting from what both of you are saying is, is part of the appeal is overhead. There, you don't have the overhead. You don't really, I like the concrete slab with the roll-up door um, analogy because that's, what I think of when I think of self-storage. Um, what other, I mean, other than overhead, so we've got low overhead. I, I love the tech first approach. What else, what do you think is appealing? If you were looking at this investment from for the first time, what would the appeal be? So, you know, this, for me, I'm very much, you know, spreadsheet analytical, financial driven, right? So I always start at, you know, pro forma is where am I at today? Where can I get it? How do we add value, you know, to said property to, to be able to command a higher exit, a higher price, refinance, you know, increase the revenue, you name it, right? And when we look at residential, you know, you've got a, new, a number of ways to do it. Most common is either new construction or you buy an existing and the current tenants are below market and you need to come in and put a bunch of renovations in place. And what was renting for 1500 a month can now rent for two grand a month because you invested 10 grand in upgrades, right? And there's, there's other ways to add value, but that's, that's kind of the traditional way to do it in residential. And when we looked at storage, um, especially in the markets where we played, think population 15,000 to 100,000, we're buying these things from, from individuals that own one or two facilities. It might be the only thing they do. It might be a side hustle for them. And so not just from a capitalization perspective, but from an operational side, they're inefficient and they're leaving meat on the table. And so from us, we can come in day one and what they might, might cost them 45% 
you know, as a percentage of revenue, as far as expenses goes, would cost us 30%. And maybe they don't have a website. Maybe they don't have a Google My Business. Maybe they don't accept credit cards or push people to auto pay. Maybe they have um, a cell phone that they answer, you know, when they can, because they're working a full-time day job. So if somebody needs storage and they call them and they don't answer, they go to the competitor. Um, maybe they don't drive street rates or rent rates because they're the mayor of the town and they know everybody. And if they raise rent by 10 bucks a month on their buddy they seem like a cheap ass and and you'd be surprised at you know how often this happens in these little towns we go into or even mid-tier towns so for us it, it was an asset class where i could say here's where they're at today here's how they value it but guess what i know i can get the revenue to why we know we can cut expenses this way there's maybe a little bit of deferred maintenance but i don't need to you know coming in and installing you know or repainting doors or installing, you know, crazy amenities that really don't add any value to the end user isn't the way to do it. It's all operational. And so for us, it was a way to, you know, take a facility that might be $500,000 purchase and within a year, just through pulling a couple of repeatable processes that we put into place, we can increase that value to 800 to a, to a million. And when you're looking at putting a hundred grand down on a facility like that, you know, that, that ROI on that down payment is, is, pretty damn high. And then as you scale, you know, do the same thing with a $10 million facility, it gets a little bit more challenging at the bigger levels, but we're still able to accomplish pretty much similar results, even in the five to $15 million acquisition range, if we're patient enough and wait for the right deals. Gentlemen, thank you very much for your time today. And to our listeners, remember to tune in next week for part two of this conversation. And as a reminder, if you like what you hear, please subscribe to, and more importantly, like the CRE with CBC Worldwide podcast on your favorite pod app. Also, be sure to check out some of our older episodes. There's a lot of great stuff. This is Tom Hershey with Cobalt Banker Commercial. Thanks for tuning in.